but this morning, uh, we're going to start a little mini-series uh, called Love Without Borders, and the title, the subtitle that I put on it is a little bit odd. It sounds like a paper at a university or something, Towards a Biblical Response to Displaced People, and uh, I wanted to explain the title to start with because the title was deliberate. I say towards because uh, this topic isn't going to be solved by one sermon on one Sunday. And so this is the beginning of a movement towards a biblical response. This isn't the biblical response just here in the next half hour. And I use the word displaced rather than refugee because people are displaced in more ways than one. And so... I want over the next two or three weeks as we go through this to understand that we're talking about displaced people and we can be displaced nationally, we can be displaced economically, we can be displaced socially. Uh, There's lots of ways in which people are displaced and we need a biblical response as Christians, as believers, to all the displaced people in our society. Biblical, of course, because we start as Christians, with who God is and what he has said about himself and how we are to respond. And, of course, a response because we can't remain unchanged by God's revelation and his spirit in us, either individually or corporately, and so these things demand a response. And so that's, you know, for the academics out there, that's the explanation of the title and why it sounds like a thesis paper, uh, because I wanted to be very precise that we are moving towards a biblical response as a church and as individuals, to displaced people, as it sort of impinges itself on our collective consciousness in recent months. Let's pray. Father God, we do open up your word as your children, as your servants. We open up your word to understand who you are, because it is the clearest revelation that you've left us, and it's your living word. It is the image that we have of your son. And he speaks through it by his spirit, by the spirit that's living in each of us who follow him. And so, Lord, we pray today as we look into your word that it it would move us towards a response, a biblical response, a God-honoring response to all displaced people that we encounter in our lives. And it would teach us what we need to know, maybe as we are even displaced in our own life, and what your heart is towards us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the most foundational truths of the Christian worldview, that is how we view and make sense of the world, because we all do that. We all have a worldview. We all have a, a, a process in which we try to understand and make sense of what is going on. And as Christians, one of the most fundamental truths of how we view the world is that we are living in a world that's fundamentally broken. The sin of mankind has entered into the world and broken it. And we crave and we fight and we do harm to one another and we take and we spoil what God intended for good, we use for harm. And since the Garden of Eden, the world has never been safe. Okay, that's a a fallacy that there's ever been safety in the world and it's growing increasingly unsafe. The, the sort of bubble of wealth and safety that mostly, for the worldwide stage, mostly European and North Americans have happened to live in for the last several decades is shrinking. That bubble is shrinking. And at home, in our own cities, there are tens of thousands of homeless and poor. They are stripped of their belongings 
and they are half dead on the sidewalks, even in our own cities. And around the world, war and injustice and oppression and famine and national uh, natural disasters and family breakdowns and disease and mental illness and disability and racism and crime and class struggles, all of these things, all of these social problems are the result of our alienation from God. And the people who are listening to this message you know, probably belong to a very small group of people who, by God's grace, lead lives of wealth and safety mostly untouched by the power of those forces. And the danger that we face as sort of listeners of this message here in Halliburton in North America in that bubble of security and wealth for the most part on a world world scale that we've created for ourselves. The danger of that relative comfort is that it can isolate us in what amounts to a, a sort of make-believe world where pervasive, life-altering suffering and despair is difficult for us to see or comprehend. For the most part, we don't run into it on the scale that the rest of the world runs into it. Not without exception, but for the most part. But what faces most people, perhaps in some way, some even here, in much of their lives, is the combined threats of poverty and alienation and displacement. That's the reality of our broken world, of the fact that sin has entered into the world and broken it. And that's the way most people through history, and most people, statistically, population-wise, live today. And so on a worldwide scale, there's continual migrations of people who are driven by war and by poverty, from one place to another. And in these recent days, these people who are driven out of their normal homes have forced themselves on the collective conscience and on the collective resources of the rest of the world over the last several months and year. And they have forced themselves on our conscience, even here in safe, comfortable, middle-of-nowhere Halliburton. We just can't ignore the reality of the displaced people of the world. And just to get a little perspective on what's going on in the refugee crisis of Syria, over 35% of Syria has fled their country as of today. So thinking in terms of Canada, imagine Ontario empty. Not a single solitary person in the province of Ontario. That's who's left. Just a, you know, papers blowing down the street, tumbleweeds in Toronto. Nobody left in the whole province. That's what it would mean in Canada for what's going on in Syria. Lebanon, a neighboring country to Syria, has taken in over 1.2 million refugees. That's 25% of the population of Lebanon. Canada would have to accept 8 million refugees to compare to what Lebanon has absorbed from Syria. So you just need to get perspective on what is going on in the Middle East and what neighboring countries like Lebanon and Jordan and others are bearing in this crisis of refugees. And so when we think about 25,000 or 35,000 coming to Canada, we're nowhere near the level of compassion and need that is out there in terms of meeting the needs of these people. 
I mean, if I was to put forward a, a number like 8 million refugees that Canada would accept, people would just... But Lebanon's living that reality right now. 1.2 million refugees in a country of 4 million. Staggering. It's a complex problem. And we can't pretend that it isn't a complex problem. There are hundreds of thousands of people, regular, middle-class, well-educated people who are now refugees. And they're following train tracks and roads to any border or any shore that they can find. And consider how many have drowned in these crowded boats that cross over trying to reach safety. And how many have died in camps, in in capsized boats and, and people trying to reach the shores of Europe. And then when reaching the border or ashore, they're faced with barbed wire and armies, and there they stand for weeks or even months because where can they go? It's a tragic situation that honestly is difficult for us to even comprehend because we live in this bubble so far removed from this for so long. To reach a point of suffering where you today would pack up things from your house that only could be carried or dragged, you would walk down the street and empty your bank if you could, And then you would just start walking towards a border today because there is nothing for you here. And whatever you could carry and whatever you could scrape out of your bank account is all you could take with you. And you would hope that you would avoid being killed on the way. Forget your career, forget your education, forget your nicely planned future for your kids. This is their reality now. They're dragging a suitcase with whatever dollars they have. And then add to that situation the complexities of hidden terrorist cells and bombings and violence and crime that comes with these camps of thousands of people and political policies and domestic economics and existing poverty in existing countries and housing problems in our own country. How do we respond to this refugee crisis? That is the question. How do we have a biblical response to displaced people? What is the proper response to the alienation and the poverty and the displacement of people around the world? and closer to home. And it's a problem that can dominate our news headlines, it can dominate our politics, and it dominates our conversations from day to day and week to week. People are looking for answers to this. They're looking to politicians, they're looking to economists, they're looking to friends and family, and without realizing it, this is what we have to understand, is they're looking to the church as well. Because as you're sitting at the cozy, or you're sitting at Baked and Battered, or, or you're sitting waiting in line for your kids at school, those conversations you as Christians, people are looking to the church for answers as to what we do for people. They're looking for an answer. What answer are we giving? Or perhaps better statement, better stated, what answer are we living in terms of a response as Christians to these refugees and to displaced people? And so as a church, of course, we look and we turn to God and his word for our answer. What is God's heart for refugees? What is God's heart for displaced people? And I'm going to warn you that I'm going to go and hit through a lot of verses very quickly, but it's partly because there were so many verses to choose from on this matter. There are literally hundreds of verses that express the compassion of God towards the displaced and the poor. And so I've picked out a few in order to show from the very beginning these things really quickly. God's heart our instruction, the warnings that come with them, the example of Israel, God's people, and God's encouragement to us. And then we'll look at how it's expressed in the New Covenant Church. And so first, God's heart, Deuteronomy 10, 7-19, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. We've just been singing about that. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God 
who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner. That's the, that's the foreign traveler who's in need. Giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the heart of God. When God gave the law to Moses, he was forming a believing community where social righteousness was just as required as personal righteousness. There was much about the law and much in the expectations of God's people that involved their worship of him. We know that, that they were to worship him. And in their training in the law and in their personal purity, there was a lot of that. Just like in the church today, our core purpose is to worship God. That's why we're here this morning. It's our job as his people to worship him. That's our, that's our duty. That's our privilege and pleasure to worship God. And it's our, and it's, and it's our core purpose as a church to teach and equip the believers. That's what we do. We have Bible studies and teaching and equipping. And we share our knowledge of God. We share the gospel. We do all of those things, all the same expectations. But now, today, just as then, God expects his people Beyond that righteousness, that personal righteousness, is to exhibit a social righteousness. God expects his church to show mercy to those in need. Not just as an afterthought, not just as something you get done when, you know, when, when we've done all the worship and we've done all the training and equipping and Bible studies and we've done all the gospel stuff and we've done all the evangelism. Eventually we'll get around to doing social justice and, and caring for people. No, it's not something you just get around to at the end. God expects it his heart he expects a social righteousness and then he gives us instruction leviticus 19:34 this is the law god says you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself for you are strangers in the land of egypt and i am the lord your god he says These people who are among you, you treat them like family. You treat them like Canadians. You treat them like your brothers and sisters. God's law is an expression of his nature. It's filled with commands for social justice and mercy. Individual Israelites were forbidden of harvesting every scrap of grain so that the poor could take from their fields in Exodus 23. And Jewish citizens were told to give to whomever was in need until their need was gone. Deuteronomy 15. Think about that. Give until the need is gone, is met. Not just give a little bit and hope it's enough, but give until the need is met. The priesthood gave to the poor out of the tithes that they received. Deuteronomy 14. And so where do we fit justice and mercy into our ministry priorities, our personal priorities, our you know, our worship is great. We, we teach. You know, it's fantastic. We have discipleship and care for each other. That stuff is all terrific. Plenty of it. But meeting the needs of strangers, where are we there? Where are we at in terms of meeting the needs of strangers? And then there's a warning. There's a warning in Zechariah 7, 10 to 12. This is the warning that God gives his people in terms of his heart and then his law. He says, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they, this is the people of Israel now, Zechariah the prophet records this. He says, But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. And they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. 
So he explains his heart, he gives the instruction, and then through the prophet Zechariah, we get a warning. If you make your heart diamond hard, if you stop up your ear to the cries of these people, the fatherless and the sojourner, the refugee, then great anger will come from the Lord. This is not his heart that we should turn our back on these people. And then he gives an example. In Isaiah 16, he gives an example. He says, give counsel and grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. That means your, your covering of people should be like uh, so as dark as, as a shadow is at noon. Shelter the outcast. That's how perfect their shelter should be. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcast of Moab... And let's just pause there for a minute. Understand who Moab is, right, that God is talking about to the people of Israel. Moabite women led the men of Israel into sin during the Exodus in Numbers 25, and Solomon into sin as a king in 1 Kings 11. And the offspring of Moabite marriages were banned from entering the tabernacle even after ten generations after Deuteronomy 23. And the Moabite king Balak hires Balaam to curse the Israelites, but is foiled by that talking donkey thing. And then later, you remember that, and then, that's why you remember it, and then later the Moabite monarch Eglon oppresses Israel until he's assassinated by Ehud in the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so this is Moab. This is like, Israel has no business with Moab. But look at the example. He says, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased... And he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. And so he's saying, Moab is under oppression right now. There is an oppressor who is trampling Moab. And God is saying to his people Israel, he's saying, care for these Moabites. Can you imagine the Jewish people, Israel, they're like, seriously, God? Moabites? Right? You want us to be like noonday shade to them? To do no evil to them? To shelter them? God says even Moabites should receive shelter from Israel when they are oppressed until the oppressor is removed from their land. Don't we have a people right now that some might consider an enemy, past or present, and yet their land is oppressed? There's a trampler in their land. And are they driven out by destroyers like Moabites were? And so should we deny them shelter? We have to listen to the word of God on this. He can't make it any clearer. And then he gives us an encouragement if we do this. right In Isaiah 58, he encourages us if we follow his heart and his law and we heed the warning and we do what Israel did for Moab. He says in Isaiah 58, he says, Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go forth before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. That's the encouragement. God says, if you just do this, then your righteousness will break forth like the dawn. And I'll guard your back. Don't worry. Don't worry about what might happen. Because God's got your back. He says the glory of the Lord is going to be your rear guard. 
What an encouragement. And there is this rhythm of compassion that beats through the Old Testament when God the Father speaks. It's like a drum or like a heartbeat from the books of the law and through the books of wisdom and right through all the prophets. And the heartbeat of God is this. Show mercy, shelter the weak, grant justice, comfort the oppressed. That is the heartbeat of God. And then you go to the New Testament. You come into the New Covenant. And Jesus, of course, and James and John and all the apostles, they pick up on this rhythm of the message of God. And they know that to be Christian is to be merciful. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're mutually inclusive. At the very beginning of his ministry life, Jesus came home to Nazareth and he entered into his local synagogue just like going to church on a Sabbath day. And he came and he gave the daily reading from the Law and the Prophets. And his very first sermon where Jesus announces his coming is this. And he reads from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he goes and sits down. What is Jesus all about? Recovering the sight of the blind. Liberty to those who are oppressed. That's the ministry of Jesus. And in John, the Apostle John, his first letter that we have to the church, and he sets out as a test for genuine Christian to be recognized by. This is John's test of genuine Christianity. He says it's meeting the physical needs of those who are lacking. In 1 John 3.17, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods, and we started out talking about how we've lived in this bubble of having for decades the world's goods. In fact, North America has about 80% of the world's goods in terms of wealth. He says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart, diamond hard, so to speak, against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. Little children, let us not love in a word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And just like John, James sees such a tangible connection between truth, true faith, and acts of compassion that he can say, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that without acts of mercy, then the professed faith can't be real. Just like John, James sets this out as a test of true faith and true Christianity. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, James takes what Jesus and John said, James turns it into a spiritual rule. It's like an axiom. James says that it can't be broken. It's like a mathematical theorem, right? The length of the hypotenuse is the sum of the square of the other two sides. High school students, I got that right? You can't break it. It always is every time. The length of the hypotenuse is always the sum of the squares of the other two sides. It's never not. It can't be otherwise because that theorem is simply a description of reality. And that is what mercy and compassion are to true faith, James says. It's like an axiom. If there's true faith, there will be acts of mercy. You can't have the one without the other. If you don't have the acts of mercy, then it's not a true saving faith. 
Your heart has not been transformed. The Spirit of God does not reside in you. If the sum of the squares don't add up, it's not a triangle. It's something else. And so James says this, he agrees with John that this is the sign of true Christianity. And will you say, well, that's James, and he comes across as a bit of a graceless grouch, right? That God isn't going to be that strict about my attitude towards mercy, is he? Right? Like I gave my heart to God. You know, he's not going to be that, you know, picky about actually how much compassion I have, is he? But let's just go back and remember Jesus' description of the judgment, of the separation of the sheep, believers, from the goats who were pretenders. And what his assessment, what did Jesus' assessment boil down to? In Matthew 25, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. What's Jesus saying? Well, James is saying the same thing Jesus said, actually. Right? It's all the same. Right? Those that inherit the kingdom are those who have acts of mercy flowing out of their faith. They have a heart transformed by God that agrees with God. There is just no avoiding this reality. There is no avoiding that God's heart And our instruction and our very faith is intrinsically tied to compassion. Without compassion and mercy, then we do not understand the heart of God. And nor can we claim to possess His love. We must possess His love even towards our enemies. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So like I started out saying, this is towards a biblical response to displaced people. This sermon is not the response. This is towards it. This sermon is just laying the foundation. This message is just laying the foundation to get our hearts and our minds into the right space, which is God's space. That from the very beginning, it's been God's heart towards displaced people, towards poor and towards refugee. And woe to anyone who turns their back on those that are in need. And so if God and his word doesn't let us off the hook in terms of refugees, then what is the good news of the gospel as it applies to this? And I want to frame this in a gospel context because the gospel is not something that we just leave behind after we give our heart to Jesus and then we move on to other things beside the gospel. We have to remember that as God's people living in the new covenant, the gospel informs everything that we do and everything in every way that we act. And so the gospel, the good news, is redemption. The gospel is a gift. It's given to us without earning it. It's riches poured out into our poverty. We had nothing. We were bankrupt before God, and he poured his riches into our poverty. And it's also the gospel, a transformation of citizenship. It moves us from darkness into light. It moves us from citizens of this world to citizens of heaven. It moves us, as Israel moved, from Egypt into the promised land. And the gospel is for all people in all nations. It's not an ethnic gospel. The gospel is for everybody to freely receive. And the gospel is hope, and the gospel is equity. We are all equal under God. And so our response to God and our response as recipients of a gospel that is all of those things has to be the same. Our response as recipients of a gospel like that should be the same because it's what we received. And so we should go and do likewise. 
And it should be the same so that our actions are compatible with our message and don't contradict it. If we profess a gospel of reconciliation and forgiveness and mercy and equity and generosity and riches being poured into poverty and hope and equity, then how can a message like that be effective if we contradict it with actions and attitude that are the opposite? If we respond to people in need and who need equity and who need mercy and who need riches poured out on them, we respond with fear and self-preservation and anger and suspicion and withdrawal. Is that the gospel we received? No. We received a gospel of generosity and hope and equity and mercy. And so our message and our actions should align. The good news of the gospel is not simply a formula for salvation that we learn once and then we leave it behind. The good news of the gospel is that God is full of mercy and love towards the world. It's the defining principle of our entire Christian life. And so our life with each other and our actions towards everybody else and towards the world can never contradict the central message of the gospel. God loves you. And as God's people, we love you. And his gospel is generosity and mercy and grace. And so our actions are generosity and mercy and grace. And if you're here today and you didn't understand the gospel like that, you didn't understand that it was for you, please talk to somebody after the service. Because God wants to pour his generosity and his riches and his grace and his mercy into your life. And if you're trying to get by on your own and you're feeling like you're at the end of the rope and you tied the knot to hang on and you've got nothing left and you're bankrupt, then you're exactly where you need to be. Because God does not want anything from you. It's only when we're bankrupt, when we come to him like little children who have nothing to offer, that we can receive the gospel. So if that's where you're at this morning, then please talk to somebody sitting around you because they want to share that good news with you. So how does that respond to us in terms of our response? I don't know how many Syrian refugees might end up around Halliburton. You know, we can do our small part to completely meet the needs of perhaps one family, hopefully two, right? We have this Aura initiative going on to bring some families in. And at this point in time, that may be all that ever come in terms of the Syrian refugee reality. The Frost Center is being prepared, but it's just a backup facility. They're not using it as of right now. You know, there's no plans for families to move in there. But who knows? That would be awesome if, if they did. You know, maybe we pray to that end. Maybe we pray to the end that the Frost Center isn't just a backup facility, that the government decides to use it and we get 50 or 60 Syrian refugee families right here in our backyard where we can care for them, where we can pour out the, the richness and the generosity of the gospel onto these people who are in desperate need of it. They know what bankruptcy feels like. And that would be awesome. God would be placing on our doorstep the people that he intends to be the objects of our love. A love without borders that does not recognize any reason a person may be displaced, whether they're displaced from their country halfway around the world or whether they're simply displaced economically or socially or physically. The love that is God, the love that God places in us is a love that responds in mercy to every kind of displaced people. And so in practical, because I've got to get practical here really quick, in practical terms, in terms of this Syrian refugee crisis, number one, Pray and read your Bible and ask God to conform your heart even more to his own. All of our hearts need to be broken. My heart needs to be broken over this. So forgetting everything else, 
Just pray that God would break your heart over this refugee situation and displace people and ask God to conform your heart to his. But then speak positively about refugees in general and Syrians in particular. Canada is a nation of essentially refugees. Your parents or grandparents were almost certainly refugees to Canada. And you may not think your casual conversations make any difference out there in the community, but they're significant. What we talk about at the Cozy and what we talk about at Tim Hortons makes a difference to people. For the most part, they know you go to church and they know what you believe. And so talk positively about the Syrians. Talk positively about refugees and poor and displaced people. Don't be part of harmful comments and sowing suspicion and doubt and an undercurrent of animosity towards these helpless people. They got enough stacked against them right now without an undercurrent of animosity against them wherever they go. So don't be part of that. That's not the reputation we want as Jesus' followers. Support this Aura initiative, right? Support what, what the Anglican Church is doing and the community partners that they have. We have members of our missions team involved, and it's been doing a great job of developing a positive plan for showing mercy towards the refugees. So show support to that. We want to we show support from Lakeside. You can, you can mark on your envelope or give a special offering to the missions and just put refugee on it, and we'll make sure that we create a special uh, contribution from Lakeside to that initiative. We want to show that initiative that Lakeside cares about what they're doing. And in terms of displaced people in general, as I said at the start, this is a towards moment. This is the start of a movement over the next few weeks and hopefully months and years to come. So keep an ear and an eye out for opportunities here at Lakeside to join or start a ministry of mercy. We are not doing it perfectly by any means. But here at Lakeside, we want to start responding as a church family to this biblical challenge that social righteousness is not just tacked on at the end of our budget and at the end of our ministries after worship and Bible studies and equipping and, and uh, you know, and care for each other and all of that stuff. That's good. That's commanded. But social righteousness needs to be elevated. And so this is a towards moment. So keep an ear and an eye out for how you can participate or even start a ministry of mercy. Come out to Shepherd's Table once or twice and just make friends with some displaced people. That's one of the things Lakeside's been doing for a long time really well. And I know a lot of you haven't been there. Just come out once or twice and get to meet some of the local people that are in a way displaced out of the situation where they would prefer to be. Take a shift at the rec room for the same reason or do Thursday afternoons with me. I'm there. Much of our work with displaced people is alongside our local partners, and so you can volunteer at the Four C's or at the Pregnancy Care Center or any of those partners that we support. You know, just get in touch so that your heart has a chance to be transformed. And lastly, don't do it alone. Take this idea to your small group this week and ask yourself, how can you be a part of joining or starting a ministry of mercy? Because you don't do it all alone. You don't walk out of here and say, okay, i got to just you know, shoulder this burden and do it. Don't do it alone. Do it with your small group. Do it with your family. Do it with your church. But respond to God's heart for the people who are displaced in this world, to the poor and the refugees. This is a towards moment. It's towards a response that we want to become a habit and a culture at Lakeside for refugees and for displaced people. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your message this morning. When you gave it to me and I was writing it, I didn't think it was gonna didn't think it was gonna land this hard, but thank you that it did. Father God, as a as a people of yours, just like Israel was and is, 
As a people of yours, Lord, humble our hearts. Cause us to seek repentance and forgiveness that we have maybe uh, let slip our heart towards the displaced people in our midst. Help us to put an emphasis on mercy ministries, to have your heart for those who are fatherless, who are homeless, who are under the heels of oppression from whatever source. Let this be a place of encouragement and safety that they can flee into. Let this place be a place of mercy and generosity, open-handedness, open-heartedness. Transform us, Lord. Let this be the start of a movement towards something greater that brings you greater glory and greater honor. We pray this as your people. And all God's people said, Amen.